actually um, was there at the end of 98. Yeah. You're, you're live, Jeff. We're okay. glad to have you back. Okay, good to have you guys back. Good, to, good to be back. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we pray, but before we pray, why don't we have, uh, why don't we have the uh, wonderful music to set us to the mood of prayer. Dawn. <laughs> gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be your people. We're thankful that you loved us so that you sent your only begotten Son into the world that we might have life. But Father, we're thankful that not only do we have life, but we have a knowledge of you, which is indeed our salvation. But you sent your Son into the world that we might know who you are, that we might know the way in which you loved us, and that we might have communion with you. So, Father, as we come, we pray that you will help us to understand our union with Jesus Christ. We pray that you might deepen our experiential communion with you. And we pray, Father, that we might understand the scriptures more. Father, we ask that your hand would be upon us, especially in the loss of our brother Dick. We pray that you'll comfort his family. And we pray that the time of remembrance in May would be a joyous one. Father, we thank you for Dick's life. It certainly was a gift to many of us. The way he touched our lives and the way he touched so many others was remarkable. We ask now that you'll bless and keep his family, his friends, and his memory with us. And Father, we pray as we gather together, uh, you will bless those who are recovering like our, uh, our brother, um, uh, uh, Forney, P or Bob, Forney. Bob, Bob. Uh, our brother Bob. And uh, Father, we ask that you will uh, do this for your glory and our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we are going to do something uh, different. And the reason we're going to do something different is... Um, um, I hate to say it, but a uh, bit of a time uh, pressure, and so I need to just take uh, a few weeks and do something that is uh, familiar, familiar to me, uh, but hopefully not familiar to all of you. And so I want us to think about Isaiah, even if it is familiar, hopefully it's something that will benefit you. But uh, it should be familiar to, to us as believers. I want us to think about the servant songs of Isaiah. Uh, there are four of them. And uh, what I want us to do as we think about these songs is um, I want us to think about them uh, like this. I want us to think about just an introduction. And today we're going to think about introduction. We're going to think about getting our feet wet to the book of Isaiah. And so we're going to think broadly about Isaiah. We're going to ask a theological question. And that is a question that uh, asks us where does Isaiah fit in the redemptive scheme of things? Because that's an important question. Then we're going to think about the call of the servant. We're going to think about 
the commission, the commitment, the career. And then I want us to think about the culmination. The culmination of the servant is not a song of the servant that we're going to find in Isaiah, but it's a, it's a New Testament. I want us to think uh, beyond the book of Isaiah to where we find the servant songs in the New Testament and then how they help us, how they encourage us to know who this servant is and how he does in fact help us and we certainly have a sense of that already. Um, so today I want us to think about a few questions. I want to think about the question, why study the book of Isaiah? Um, how does Isaiah fit? I want, to think about, I want to think about just an outline of the book of Isaiah, and then I want us to think about the shadow of the servant as he appears not only in Isaiah, but as he appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. That's a pretty significant thing because it's not just in Isaiah that we find the servant. We find him elsewhere. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a striking thing um, to find that kind of language in the uh, Old Testament besides these songs. We have a tendency to think of them just in the songs, but they're more broadly in the Old Testament and in the New. So those are the questions I want us to think about. And uh, why don't we get started? Why study uh, the book of Isaiah? Well, there are many reasons why we might study the book of Isaiah. Um, when you think about uh, the book itself... Um, it's, uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's very familiar to us. It's perhaps one of the most familiar prophets. People love sermons through it as long as they're about 10 weeks. Just kidding. Um, you know, just hit the high points, you know, stay away from the judgment. And, uh, you know, uh, and yet it's, uh, it has certain access points. And uh, William Perkins talks about how the Bible has access points just like anything else. When you think about, uh, I, I think about uh, the first time I ever changed brakes on a car. You know, that was, uh, that was a, an endeavor I took up for a, a person in my congregation that didn't have any money. And so um, we were talking about it one day, I said, it can't be that hard, I can change oil. I'll change the brakes. <laughs> so, uh, so what I did was I, I ended up going and buying a book on, on his particular car. I found out later a friend of mine who's a mechanic said those books are just enough uh, information to get you in trouble. But, uh, but I took that book, laid it out, and, uh, and then I took the, the parts off and laid it exactly as they were uh, on the vehicle and then replaced them with new parts. And so I told him, I said, well, there you are, get in and go. <laughs> no, <I didn't. laughs> <laughs> William Perkins talks about access points. How do you access this body of information, this discipline? How do you access uh, this in some manageable way? And William Perkins talks about in his Art of Prophesying, which is a book on preaching, talks about how you access the Bible. And he says, you access the Bible in the New Testament through the book of John or through the book of Romans. Those are great ways to access the entire message of the Bible. But he says... Isaiah is a great place to access the Old Testament, which will lead you into the New. And in fact, uh, it's interesting. I remember Sinclair Ferguson telling us once that uh, he was in grammar school and he had a, uh, a teacher that would always have them read the scriptures and he had his uh, friend uh, called upon to stand up and read the scriptures one morning. And his friend announced that he was going to read from the Gospel of Isaiah. And Ferguson says, how he, at the moment, he was very embarrassed for his friend, but he said, as I got older, I started to realize what a wonderful 
title that was for the book of Isaiah, the Gospel of Isaiah. So this is one of those key access points into the Bible that we can't forsake. And I would say this to you, when we think about, when we think about the songs that we're going to think about, not only does Isaiah become an access point, but richer and deeper still are these songs because they're used so frequently in subtle ways in the New Testament. For instance, when, when Paul talks about uh, being a minister to Timothy, he talks about a servant of God should. And one of the things about it is that uh, he's drawing down on the servant songs as he describes the ministry. So they're used, they're, they're, they're there, whether we know they're there or not, consciously or unconsciously, but they provide us with a wonderful access into the scriptures. Um, when I talk to you about providing an access, you can think about it in one of two ways. If you've ever, ever gone <laughs> splunking, um, that would be one way uh, to do it, which would never be the way that I would do it, or this way, and uh, this is the way I think of Isaiah, sort of this vast opening that opens us up to riches and beauty in, the, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I want us to think about some themes that we find in the book of Isaiah that, um, that invite us into the riches of Isaiah. And for instance, I want us to go to uh, 1, 5, and 6 for just a minute. 1, 5, and 6. This is where, um, this is where the gospel of Isaiah opens, and, uh, and it's not very encouraging. Uh, in fact, what we find here is the wickedness of Judah. I want you to just listen to these verses for just a minute, and then I want to draw your attention to something. Verse 5 and 6. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Now, I want you to, um, I want you to, um, oh, and then verse six. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now, I want you to move ahead to Isaiah 53, to Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, what we find is that uh, most famous of servant songs. Um, and one of the things that you notice in this servant song is that we're told that the servant is stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed for our iniquities, and so on. Unattractive. And, huh? Unattractive. Unattractive. And one of the things that we learn is that here is the servant who comes down and inhabits the life of his people through the incarnation and takes upon himself what? Their sickness, their faintness, their wounds. And he takes them upon himself that he might become a curse for them. And so right from the very beginning in the book of Isaiah, you see the servant son and the condition that he's about to enter in. And, uh, and so 
Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. You start off with sin, but by the time you get almost all the way through the book of Isaiah, you find that there is a substitute who will come and take these wounds upon himself for his people. So it's a great, it's a great thing to think about when we think about um, the sin of, of the people and the substitute that they need. But let me just now say one other thing, and that's this. When you think about this substitute, who is he? Well, he is the Holy One of God. If you go to Isaiah chapter 6, this is that vision. And uh, I'll say more about it, but I want you to think about this for a minute. This is that great vision of the Lord on his throne and uh, high and lifted up. And one of the things that you find about this text is that you you don't really rise above the hem of God's throne, uh, of his robe. Um, It's just full of majesty and glory, but there's no real description of God here. But who is this that's seated on the throne? Well, you have to go to, it's, it's of course God, but you have to go to John 12 in order to find the answer to that question. And if you go to John chapter 12, one of the things that you find is something very clear. And it says this, this is in verse 36 of chapter 12. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then here's a quote from Isaiah. And it's actually from the end of 52. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then this. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now listen to what's next said. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And the question is, who's the antecedent of him? It's Jesus. And we are to understand that it's Jesus on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. He's the all-glorious one who has uh, come, made himself known, and, and in such an unrecognizable, unattractive state, the one who will take upon himself the bruises of his people that they might have life through him. And, uh, and yet, what we have here is, again, if you can just imagine it this way, an unholy people, a holy God, and God bridges that gap by sending his son into the world to take upon himself the bruises that were theirs, that they might have life. So Isaiah, when you think about it, really has a, has a gospel message to it. Not only that, I want you to think about the Messiah's birth. It's in Isaiah. Oftentimes, uh, when we think about Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, uh, we think about I want you to go there for just a minute. Matthew chapter 1, we have a genealogy there. Uh, and uh, what do we have? We have, um, uh, in chapter 1, we have this 18 through 25, beautiful introduction to... Uh, Jesus. And what do we find? We find a quote from Isaiah. And that quote is from Isaiah chapter 7. Now, I want you to hold your place in Matthew, and I want you to just find your way to Isaiah chapter uh, 7 for a minute. And in Isaiah chapter 7, you find that Ahaz is in a, in a great deal of trouble. Um, the, uh, the kingdom has been divided. Uh, remember, there's Judah in... Uh, in the south, there's Israel in the north. Uh, it's a divided kingdom now. And then Syria or Damascus is up at the top. And uh, 
this is always a volatile place, um, and it had been for a long time. There were civil wars in the 150s BC, civil wars in the 60s BC, and uh, so always a volatile place. Israel was a divided kingdom. Um, they were always uh, sort of against one another after the division. But um, the problem is that Israel as a whole had Damascus as an enemy. Trouble was that Assyria was rising in power and coming against them. Damascus realized that they would be the first to fall. And so they recruit Israel and say, we've got to stand against the Assyrians. We may be enemies, but we need to stand. And so they decide they're going to recruit Ahaz in Judah and that they're going to form an alliance and they're going to stand against the Assyrians who are coming. And uh, so remember, this is when um, Ahaz meets Isaiah and Isaiah tells him, look, ask anything, ask a sign in the heavens, um, ask a sign below that God will deliver you and he will do it. <clears throat> and remember, Ahaz says, well, I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. I'm not going to do that. Well, we don't, we don't find Ahaz to be a pious man. What's he doing? Well, he's already written to the king of Assyria, and he says, and this is the catch, that this is the thing that should catch all of us. Here is the son of David writing the king of Assyria saying, um, I am your servant and your son. Come and help me, and come and help me as I stand against Israel and Damascus. And so um, Ahaz has already pitched his lot in with the enemy. And so Isaiah comes to him and basically says, you don't want to be a son of David from whom the Messiah will come? Fine. I will uh, cause a virgin uh, to bear a child and he will be my son, right? That's the prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7, 14. And that's what we see in Matthew's gospel. Look at Matthew's gospel. You find this genealogy of David. And, uh, and then when you get to verse 18, Notice that Joseph is frequently called uh, Joseph and the son of David. And he is the son of David who names Dave, uh, Jesus. Uh, in other words, David's Jesus adopts Jesus into the line and lineage of his people. And you find him naming him in verse 21. And then in verse 25, we find that he named him. But in verse 23, we find who this son of David is. This son of David is the one who shall be called Emmanuel or God with us. And so Isaiah 7:14 reminds us that if there are no faithful Davids in the line of David, God will send his own son to be a son of David and redeem the people. So that, uh, that's another reason why we want to study the book of Isaiah because we find the incarnation so brilliantly portrayed for us. Or how about the atonement that's described in Isaiah 53. We see that picked up in 1 Peter and, uh, and used. And, uh, and I'll say more about that when we get to Isaiah 53. How about the way that Jesus is described in John chapter 12, which I already showed you? Um, how about evangelism? Let me ask the question. How many of you would uh, um, go to Isaiah to begin an evangelistic encounter, right? <laughs> Um, and maybe you wouldn't have a choice. Maybe you would be um, uh, thrust into the desert of Gaza and find a eunuch who is reading an Isaiah scroll, right? <laughs> and, uh, and be forced uh, into that kind of encounter. 
who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And uh, remember, it was at that moment that he begins in that text and he tells this eunuch who it is that's uh, being spoken of. And so um, I'll never forget, um, I, I listened to Rich Gantz once. Rich Gantz was a, 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 a pastor in, in my denomination, but he was a psychologist before he was a minister. He, uh, he was a Jewish man, and he was struggling quite a bit. He was a Canadian, struggling quite a bit with, um, with uh, you know, his own sin, uh, his mortality, uh, the way he'd been living. And uh, he decided that he was going to go over to Francis Schaeffer's Labrie um, over in Switzerland, and so did. He didn't meet up with Schaeffer, to my knowledge, but he did meet up with somebody who opened the Old Testament to him. He opened the Bible to him and read to him from Isaiah 53. He didn't know what they were reading from. But after they were finished reading from Isaiah 53, he said to them, how dare you read from the New Testament to me, a Jew? And, uh, and, and, and they looked at him and they said, this is from Isaiah. And, uh, and he said it was at that moment that I began to see Christ. And so a wonderful evangelistic encounter that comes from uh, Isaiah. And so let me um, just ask, just an introduction to the question, why should we study Isaiah? Um, we're in, a, I think, a day and an age where I think the New Testament, I mean, you know some famous people today who actually want to distance uh, us as a church from the Old Testament, uh, want us to um, sort of uh, be New Testament Christians, which is astounding that that's the case, but it is. Uh, but there are many reasons to study uh, the whole Bible, and especially the Old Testament, and so I was So anything you want? You guys know you can, yeah. You can probably confirm, Jeff, I know from a Jewish minister, uh, Christian Jews, the Jews today do not read Isaiah 53 in the same Bible. All their readings, they skip over Isaiah. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that right? Um, you, can, you can go on YouTube and see a number of evangelistic efforts in Israel where they ask Jews, they start reading Isaiah 53 to them, and they ask them, who is this? Is that right? Yeah. And I... I mean, they're very good videos, actually. Hmm. What do they say? Uh, they say, I've never heard this before. Oh, really? I don't know it's this. The richest point. Well, I mean, it, it just... I mean, the, the Old Testament... I mean, this is the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament. There's so much more there. And uh, for the last year at my church, I've been teaching Exodus. It's over a year, and we're only to chapter 30. Uh, but I've, I had the thought in preparing uh, this week that Christian, people get saved knowing a God, giving their lives to God that they conceive of outside of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and so people come to Christ and they give their lives to Christ and they have a salvation experience without understanding God from the root description. And, and Exodus has been so rich. Yeah. I am blown away by Exodus. Yeah. And, uh, and I keep telling the class, I said, we've got to do this. Whether you enjoy it or not, we've got to do it. Because this is, this is how we understand God. 
and what a lot of folks do, and that's how they get messed up in understanding their faith later on and maybe uh, get off on bad teaching, mm -hmm. is they understand God from the, they have a God understanding that's not rooted in the roots. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. I think I may have told you guys about the time I was on vacation down to North Carolina, and there was a, at the end of the road of the place we were staying was a church, small church, and they had a Bible study on Wednesday, and I went to it, and and uh, and at that study the minister resigned, and um, so at the end of the time, I, you had quite a presence. I did. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I went up to the guy afterwards and I said, uh, "What, what was that all about?" You know, I told him I was a minister and I was on the verge of resigning. No, I didn't tell him. <laughs> I told him I said uh, I'm a minister from up north on vacation. What, what's going on? And uh, and he said to me that basically, uh, basically he was a part-time minister, and he said um, he said. Some people in the church have read the Old Testament and believe that um, they've been kept from understanding Christianity and so want to import all kinds of Old Testament stuff into the new because they realize they think they've just discovered these things that we're supposed to hold feasts and all these things. Don't realize how these things are fulfilled in Christ. And uh, and and to his credit, he he basically said, um, in my time here, I really haven't taught them how to understand those things. So he said, you know, it's on me, but he said, I don't have time to deal with the, the struggles that are that are happening in the church as a result, and so I'm, I'm gonna let somebody else come in and take the reins, but that's, you know, a lack of exposure to the Old Testament. For just the understanding of God, who is God, and you're gonna find out when you start in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah it's not a different God, right? No, it's not but it may be different than the one you accepted. Yeah, that's right. We got a trip to Israel two years ago. And uh, in Tiberias, we got in discussion with my wife and I found a woman from the bookstore in the hotel. And she seemed to have a little inquisitive mind about Christianity. They had a lot of Christians there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I read from Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. And she said, well, when I get home, I'm going to read this in Hebrew. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. How serious she was. Yeah, you won't find anything different. Well, let's, let's now talk. This is an important question. Where does Isaiah, how does Isaiah fit into our understanding of the scriptures? And what you need to understand is Isaiah is part of the law. Isaiah is part of the law. In fact, when you think about Isaiah, one of the things that you have to understand, and I know you do, is that Isaiah is a prophet. And the question you have to ask is, what is a prophet? And the answer is, one of their functions, among the various functions, was to be a covenantal lawyer. They would come and press the claims of the covenant upon God's people. Remember, this covenant was very much like a contract. Um, not a parity contract between two equals, um, right? But a contract that was that was basically uh, had built-in disparity. Um, there was uh, a god or a king and his people, 
and the king had imposed this contract upon his people and they were to fulfill the obligations of it. And if they didn't, they would receive the curses of it. If they did, they would receive the blessings. Israel was constantly um, making themselves qualify for the curses. And so God would send his covenant lawyers, his covenant lawyers would press the contract and remind them of the blessings and the cursings. And so Isaiah fits into this period of the law. Now the question uh, that naturally comes up in the New Testament is, why then the law? Why then the law? And if you'll remember in 319, he asks this question and, uh, and then answers that question. Let me just um, go there. I, I won't. Romans 319? This is Galatians. Oh, Galatians. Yeah, Galatians. In Galatians, although that same question is asked in, uh, in Romans, um, Galatians 3.19, we read these words. Why then the law? And he gives the answer. It was added because of transgression. In other words, it was given because of sin. Now, um, you have to um, think about this uh, in terms of the progression, and we will. But why that question? Well, there's a previous text that comes before that, and it's 15 through 18. And this is what he says there. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So, uh, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So here you have uh, Paul saying, the promise comes first in Abraham, and that promise is brought to fulfillment, not in the offsprings, but in the offspring, which is Christ. So why the law, which comes in the middle? And he tells us in 15 through 18, that the law does not annul the promise. So why the law? If it doesn't annul the promise, if the promise is the promise and the promise has been brought to fruition in Christ, then why drop the law down in the midst of this thing? And the answer is what we read in verse 19. It's for transgression. Now what does he mean by that? Well, he means that it is to tease out transgression, to make transgression or sin known. And why would you want to do that? You would want to do that to drive people to the promise. In other words, if people understand their sinners, then they will understand their need for the promise of salvation from sin. And if they understand that, then, then they'll understand that there is life through the promise, not through obedience to the law. And you see, right there is where the Israelites messed up because when they were given the law, they didn't run like the Gentiles did to the promise. Instead, they believed that through law-keeping, they could reap the promise. But they misunderstood that the promise is by faith and not by obedience to the law. So that's, that's why 
the pro, uh, that's why the law set down in the midst of the promise. So let's just, um, let's walk through this uh, for just a, a few minutes. Let's walk through some, some Bible history. And we've, you and I, we've walked through this history before, but it's, a, it's an important thing to understand in terms of fit. So when we um, walk through this, we think about Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning. And we think about the covenant of works that they were given. And remember that they were given a precept not to eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden. If you obey, then you'll receive the promise of life. If you don't obey, then you will receive the punishment promised. And that punishment is uh, death. They obviously did not eat. uh, uh, Sorry, they obviously did not obey and so ate. And what happens is God comes to them walking in the cool of the day, which is probably rendered in the wind of the day, uh, probably more like um, the, the, the storm of the day, that kind of thing. Creation is not placid and peaceful at this point. It's disrupted by man's sin. God comes to them probably in Christ, says Jonathan Edwards, and cuts a new covenant with them. And that's exactly what it is. It's the covenant of grace. And when you think about this new covenant, this covenant of grace, I want you to think about the covenant of grace from the time of Adam until the time of Christ as a flower that exfoliates. In other words, when you find the Noahic covenant and then you find the Abrahamic covenant and then you find the Mosaic covenant, these aren't different covenants and God dealing with his people in different ways. In other words, he deals with his people this way at this time and this way at this time, but these but this time is totally different from this time. It's not, it's not that. It's not disconnected like that. So, for instance, there are some systems of thinking about the scriptures that will say, for instance, those kinds of things. An old system that is, is, is different today, that's shaped a bit different today, uh, used to say that the Sermon on the Mount is not for the, the dispensation of grace, but it's for the kingdom dispensation, which is to come later. So you don't have to worry about the laws that are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a dispensation of grace. And that's not the way that I would encourage you to look at the scriptures. The scriptures are, are from Adam's fall and God's visitation of him till Jesus Christ, one covenant that is unfolding and exfoliating. Yeah. I've heard it described as progressive You know, and that is a wonderful way to describe it and should be described in that way because God is indeed progressively unfolding or exfoliating his covenant piece by piece, little by little. That's a great way to to describe it. Bill? For those that struggle with that thought process, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Bill's talking about the immutability of God. Um, and we find comfort in the immutability of God because um, we, we don't believe that God's going to wake up and decide to treat us differently tomorrow. Uh, he's going to treat us the same. And so the covenant that he's given to us, the promise that he made to us, um, is going to be steadfast and true. So for instance, I mean, when you think about what we just talked about, uh, like Bill said, the Israelites should not have woken up one morning uh, after Sinai and said, has God changed the game plan on us? He promised life to Adam on the basis of, or to, he promised, yeah, he did promise life to Adam on the basis of faith, and he promised 
life to Abraham on the basis of faith. But now there's law. Has God changed the, 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 the rules of the game? And the answer is no, because God's immutable. He deals with us um, with a, a consistent posture because he doesn't change. Not in himself and not in his ways toward us. So there's an exfoliation here. And so let's just walk through these really quickly. There's the, there's the Noahic covenant in Genesis 6 through 9. And we find that, that there God is promising to preserve the stage of redemption upon which he will bring about redemption. And uh, so then we, we need to hit the pause button just a second and we need to go back to Galatians chapter 3 verses 7 through 9. The reason I, I take you back there, Galatians 3, 7 through 9, is because this is, we're about ready to head into Abraham's covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And we need to fast forward to Galatians chapter 3 and remind ourselves of something. It says that he had the gospel preached to him. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. And it says that Abraham was a man of faith. And that's how we Gentiles are invited into this covenant, through the faith promised to Abraham. So that you have to keep that in mind because um, when we get to Abraham, we find the covenant of promise. That he was promised what? He was promised to be a, a, a nation. He was going to be given a land. And he was going to be a blessing to the other nations. Now, think about that just really quick. Think about how um, he's alone. He, he doesn't possess Israel, right? And what does God do? God takes uh, the family that is produced from him and begins to work through that family. Takes Joseph down into Egypt and then, you know, basically preserves the food supply. His family is brought down into Egypt. They, they're there, they populate, they become more numerous than the Egyptians. They become what? A nation. The Abrahamic promise is being fulfilled. He then leads them back into the promised land. They inhabit the nation, and God says to them, here's what? Here's a law, and this is the way you're to behave because it models my character. In other words, this law is righteousness. You want to be righteous like me, the one who's redeemed you, then here's the way to do it. Obey this law. And that way, you'll distinguish yourself from the other nations. And so um, what we find is we find that that law uh, is given to them, redeemed people, as a guide. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. What, about, what other aspects um, are we to think about when we think about the law of Moses? Yes, it's given to a redeemed people as a guide. But it's also given to drive them to the promise that is found in the sacrifices. In other words, when they sin, they are to go to the sacrifice. They're not to say, um, we can do this on our own if we try hard enough. But when they sin, they're to go to the substitute, the Messiah pictured in the sacrifices offered by fire. And so what we find is, um, does the law nullify the promise? No. The law, even in Israel, drives them to sacrifice, uh, drives them to the promise. Um, and so we see this when we see Galatians 3.19 or Romans 5.20. Why then the law? It exposes sin that they might confess it and find forgiveness in the substitute. And uh, I'm going to pass that up. And um, 
I want to go to David. David, man after God's own heart. Uh, the sword never departs from his house. Why? Because, uh, remember, he has the adulterous affair. He, um, he uh, uh, murders uh, Bathsheba's husband and, uh, and so on. And yet he's promised the kingship and brings a, 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 a healing to the land of Israel such that not only is the land uh, unified, but the borders are extended. And so under, under David, we find kingship. So um, it's a beautiful picture of what we'll find in Christ of the ever-expanding borders of the land, which is what Christ says, go out into all the world and disciple. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the, the sort of what is pictured in the land of Israel with the king and the expanding borders is now um, worldwide with King Jesus saying, all authority is mine. Uh, go disciple what is mine, that, that idea. And so um, then what we find is uh, we find that the north um, has no good kings. They're exiled. Uh, this is after uh, I'm, I'm racing. So you know what? Um, I'm I'm trying to get more in than me. So um, let's uh, let's just call it and uh, come back. So um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this day and for the time. Uh, thank you for the book of Isaiah and for the reminder of the gospel in it. Thank you, Father, for the reminder of how it fits into your word and how it fits into our lives. We pray now that you'll bless us. As we go forth from here, we pray that you'll strengthen us by grace. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.